Welcome to the Start HBS podcast, a conversation between Harvard Business School students and folks who have been on journeys starting meaningful ventures. We're your hosts, Bryce DeFigurito and Alex Spencer, students at Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Warren Hogarth, co-founder and CEO of Empower, a fintech startup whose mission is to empower consumers to retake control of their financial lives. Prior to Empower, Warren got his MBA at Harvard Business School in the class of 2008 and was a partner at Sequoia Capital. He has an impressive background with a PhD in chemical engineering and is just generally a really thoughtful individual. We're grateful to have Warren join us. Enjoy the conversation. You got a PhD in chemical engineering, is that right? Correct. And then you went and got an MBA after that. Um, Can you kind of like take us back to that point in your life? Um, You know, what were you thinking getting a PhD and then why did you go the MBA route? Certainly. So... Um, I have a chemical engineering undergraduate degree. Uh, I had spent the summer working in an oil refinery in Brisbane, Australia, which was my hometown. Um, it was the refinery on the opposite side of the river to the one my dad had worked in when he grad- He was a, a graduate chemical engineer. Um, thought I was going to do, you know, that would be a great career for me in undergrad, but realized that the things that I loved, which were my own autonomy, um, which were around like solving a diverse range of challenging problems and also really being at the cutting edge of sort of science and, you know, really curious questions that you could ask and answer, that part of me wasn't fulfilled. And so um, in Australia at the time, one of the best ways to, and, and that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And at the time, the best way to do that was to go and do a PhD and try and develop some technology to commercialize and, and spin out a company. So um, actually after accepting a job, went and said to them, I'm not sure this is for me. They were very supportive, enrolled in the PhD program. Fast forward, I was developing fuel cell technology. <clears throat> That's what brought me to the US. Uh, I was on a, was a Fulbright Scholar on Exchange at Princeton, had an amazing time. We filed patents, we won the business plan competition. I'd fallen in love with that concept of you know, what I thought it would be to be an entrepreneur, of creating, of being at the cutting edge, of working on a career that would be very dynamic over a 40-year period. And, um, but uh, then I really started to dive into, like, was the market ready for what we had built? And when I really asked the hard questions, and this is what I learned um, actually through the business plan competition at Princeton all the time. And this is with working on a fuel cell technology startup at Princeton. Yeah. So this was technology I developed in the lab, provisional patents that we had. This is um, in 2005. Um, this is before batteries had really taken off. People were talking about would it be electric cars that are powered by batteries or electric cars powered by hydrogen fuel cells? Would, you know, batteries be able to keep up and become more energy dense? Fuel cells were the answer or believed to be the answer. But when I really dug into the market, um, and actually I was really lucky. I went to Germany after being in the U.S. And I went to a lab in Germany called the Fraunhofer Institute. They put the first fuel cell into a laptop ever. And I got to have that sitting on my desk. And I realized all the reasons it wouldn't be productized and why the market was still at least five years away and with some coaching from some business people, they're like, well, you don't really want to start a technology company unless you can put something in the market within two years. And so I was actually in Germany and I'm like, well, 
this is not very good. Um, <laughs> I sat that in Germany. I'm like, well, the best place to be an entrepreneur is back in the US. Um, I don't have a job there. The only way to get a visa is with a job. Well, why don't I go to business school? Um, and uh, yeah, sat the GMAT, applied in, in Germany, um, went back to Australia, wrote up my thesis. Uh, you know, at that point, I thought I had a good shot at getting into MIT and a long shot in the HBS. Um, ironically, MIT said, uh, bad luck, um, but HBS, I think they uh, were, were looking for some more technical people at the time and uh, were like, fortunate. I was one of those people, just like many of you, that, you know, it's like, why did they let me in? But they gave me a shot. So That's awesome. So, so you go to HBS, um, you know, you're this PhD, you've been working on fuel cells, you know, all... You know, pretty complicated, impressive sounding stuff. Um, you sit down, and I feel like you know the first month or two at HBS, the low hanging fruit is to make fun of consultants, right? <laughs> so, so are you like, what, what are you thinking at this point? Like, you know, this is really easy. This is you know not as hard as getting a PhD in chemical engineering, or you know, was it kind of stretching you and opening you up to things that you hadn't thought about before? Could you take us kind of back to your mindset at this point? Yeah. So um, one of what I wanted to do with the MBA was to f use the time to learn as much as I could about sort of business and earn that credibility and potentially find some co-founders um, as well as go and spend as much time as I could across the river at MIT and meet some technical co-founders and find some technology that I could work with some folks on to, to do something. Um, and ironically at the time, uh, RCs weren't allowed to enter the business plan competition at HBS because it was too distracting. Um, so I actually went across the river. I met a bunch of really cool MIT people and entered their business plan competition with them. Um, and so I just sort of started that process. Uh, and we were a finalist in, I didn't, I forget what the competitions were called at the time. Um, in some of those competitions. And so I sort of, my goal was to really just meet really interesting people that, and ideally find some technology so that, or idea that coming out the other side, I could sound something with some people. Um, also during first year, there were a bunch of other people like me that were pretty pissed off that we couldn't actually go into the business plan competition. So we formed our own little renegade group. <laughs> would meet somewhat regularly. And a couple of us um, started a company called updown.com, which, I think a case got written about later on. Um, oh, no way. Georg Ludvigsen and Michael Reich uh, and, uh, and myself. So we actually did uh, start something, raised 250,000 KFC money in 2007. Uh, oh, wow. And they, they actually were able to leave and go and do the business full time afterwards. So um, I did spend some long answer to your, 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 your question, which is I did spend some time on cases. Um, found them intellectually very curious, but it certainly wasn't as challenging from a rigor point of view. Um, but I really got to use the time to, you know, meet great people and explore. And there was nothing like, whether it be within HBS, within the academic community at Harvard or MIT, or more broadly, to use that period to just meet as many interesting people because people actually, you know, return your emails and what have you and, and take time to meet with you. And it was just an amazing, fun time. Wow, that that's what you're saying really resonates with me. I think Bryce and I share a consensus, which is around artificial intelligence. And we, we kind of think that 
Working on artificial intelligence today, you know, in 2019, is similar to like working on electricity in, you know, the days of Edison and, and Tesla. I mean, and that, that's actually one of the reasons that I'm really excited about being here in Boston. You know, we've got MIT who's building a, uh, a, a building devoted just to artificial intelligence that's, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. And, and we'll see how much case, case prep we both get in, but um, I'm really hoping, I, I have sort of similar ambitions, so that, that's fun to hear, um, you know, that that's how you spent your time instead of trying to get a good comment in, uh, you know, in class. <laughs> um, okay, so you're in business school, you work on a few startups, um, some friends of yours raise some money, um, go off on the startup. And um, you eventually end up working in venture at a firm with no small reputation, Sequoia. Um, so what, what was that process like, um, first of all, m you know, making the switch to venture from sort of a more entrepreneurial um, mindset? And... Maybe could you speak to some misconceptions or some, some, maybe some anecdotes about your time working at Sequoia? Yeah, um, I mean the way I found the opportunity was twofold. One, I was flying myself out. I was sending emails to as many interesting people as I could in the Bay Area. Um, and even though I hadn't booked a ticket, I'd say, hey, I'm going to be there on this date. You know, I'm, I want to start a company. I'd love to just um, learn, you know, a little bit about your experience or I have this idea. I'd love to get your feedback. Give them something, some hook, you know, and I'd say, hey, I'm going to be there pick a day, two weeks in the future. I'd try and get as many people to say yes, and then I'd go and book the ticket. <laughs> Commitment device. Yeah, oh, oh, whoops, it got rescheduled, but could we do it a different day? Um, <laughs> And I still do that today, by the way. Uh, <laughs> to I do to even exactly. especially on trips to New York and places. Um, the so I flew myself out. I would crash on my friend's couch. Actually, it was the MIT guy who I met in first year and been in the business plan competition with, who was now out here. Crashed on his couch. Um, would go meet a bunch of people. Serendipitously, a buddy of mine, one of my one of my section mates. Had applied for a job, had gotten rejected, um, had actually done a debrief interview, and they had said to him, this was at a private equity firm, uh, hey, I hear Sequoia's looking for someone, maybe you should connect with them. And he's like, well, I don't want to do venture. But he's like, hey, Warren, why don't you reach out to these people? And I literally sent a blind email to this email address, not even being able to find out who it was, and that started it all. And I said, they said, do you want to do a call? I said, no, I'll be out there in a week or two. Why don't we just meet in person and yeah. the rest happen? Um, so it was really actually trying to think about just again, just hustling, meeting good people. And honestly, when I was there, I was just I was also myself. I was I didn't really know who Square Capital was at the time. Um, I, this was still back in the BlackBerry days. I was like reading bios in the car park before I went. <laughs> so. Um, some of the interview questions were like, "What are, if you could pick any three investments right now, what would they be? And I think we'd just done some class around like buying, you know, 
CDOs or something. And so I was even able to use something I learned at HBS in my interview. <laughs> uh, misconceptions about venture. So I think um, venture is a lot more sales than people realize. Um, you spend a lot. Of, it, it's really fun the first year or two. I mean, you're meeting amazing, you're meeting amazing people, you're thinking about really hard problems, you're recruiting, you're doing everything you can to help people. Um, and it's a, that is just, it's so cool to be so intellectually stimulated. Um, but on the other hand, it is, a, it is a, it is partly a sales job. You've got to get out there. You've got to meet people. You've got to find really interesting things because you go join a firm. They've got their own deal flow. They've got their own relationships. You're trying to find, yeah. you're not going to find Jack Dorsey walking in. You're going to be going and looking for, you know, the guys before they started was at Beta Labs or what have you back in New York, and you're looking for the diamonds in the rough. And so you're just hustling however you can, and then you find that person, you've still got to convince them that you and your firm, and then eventually the deal you put on the table, et cetera, are all of the right things versus all of the other super smart people. Um, and so I think that's something people don't appreciate a lot. Right. Um, you know, you meet a couple of thousand companies a year and you invest in one or two. So you say no a lot of the time and you've got to really work out how to do that very respectfully um, because it might probably doesn't mean it wasn't a good business. It probably means it wasn't either you didn't see the value in or you couldn't convince your partners or a range of different things. And so you still want to make sure you preserve those relationships. Um, so I'd say those are those are a few of the misconceptions on one way. On the other side, as I said, it is probably one of the most I think, intellectually stimulating jobs, and um, you learn if you, you've got to go in with a you've got to do things in the right way. But if you go in with a really open mind, where you do listen, um, you can listen. You learn a lot from the entrepreneurs. You learn a lot from the other partners. Everyone has their own archetype, and then you get to think right. Uh, like if you look at you know, the Sequoia partners that, that I was very fortunate to work with, like Doug Leone came from a sales background and could think about enterprise and SaaS businesses in unlike any other. And if you wanted to think about the first sales team and building a sales team, he had a way and a method. Um, if you look at Alfred Lin, he's like operationally one of the smartest people because he's, you know, operated really complex logistical businesses um, and is an amazing talent and judge of people. And yeah. And Getz is, you know, deeply technical and, and very thoughtful in different ways. Moritz is a visionary. Like, so you have these amazing people and you think, okay, what can I take and learn from each one of them? And how can I, you know, make it your own, both whether you want to be an investor or an entrepreneur, because even as an entrepreneur, then you're like, you're recruiting, you're thinking about your culture, all of these really cool things. So I'd say as you think about getting into the business, it's, it's like who you get to be around and then how you can, listen and learn from those great things. That's awesome. Yeah. So you were at Sequoia for a while um, before you started Empower. Uh, did that feel, you know, backwards at all? Or did people, was there a perception that that's backwards at all? Or, you know, you're working in venture for a while and then you leave to, to start something else versus the other way around? Um. I think some people think it's a little backwards. Uh, you know, I was very lucky both at HBS with Georg and Michael at Sequoia. I actually helped co-found a business there that we backed at the seed and then at the series A where I partnered with an amazing technical founder. 
um, uh, who didn't have a business co-founder at the time. And so I really took that through the Series A until we brought on someone very um, experienced and a great partner for him. Um, so I'd, got, I'd had a chance to do it a few times. And, um, you know, for me, it was uh, this, you know, we're in this golden age of startups. If you go back, this is one of the longest bull runs, the longest sort of secular shifts you could imagine. Because, you know, the, the saying that software is eating the world. I mean, the kind of businesses, you couldn't have imagined an Uber or a DoorDash or an Instacart today because these are super low gross margin businesses that, you know, um, it takes a ton of capital to scale. And that capital, like being able to raise 100, 200, half a billion, a billion dollars in a private market was just unheard of. Yeah. Like imagine if PayPal didn't have to go public and didn't want, it got it went public because they had to, they had like weeks of cash left and they went to eBay because again, it was such a giant capital intense business. I mean, you've got these business, even Stripe, like they've, it, it, we've, we've hit this age where capital is available, the demand is there, you can actually think of not just building high gross margin software businesses, but all kinds of operationally intense businesses, which is software supported. And so to miss out, it's amazing being an investor. I still get to be an investor, but to miss out on the opportunity to try and build a wonderful enduring business during this time was too good, you know, too good an opportunity. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about empower. One of the things, so, Full disclosure, I'm a super fan. Um, I consider myself an Empower OG. I don't have my wallet on me, but I do have the older card that might have a little bit of a pixelated uh, little display. (laughs) But it's since improved dramatically. Um, So one of the things I've been absolutely blown away with what you guys have done is the feature velocity. So... Since being an Empower user, I've seen you guys ship, you know, bill management, money transfers, offering, you know, uh, full banking services, whether that's debit, savings account, um, used to be above 2% per year in terms of return, but fluctuating somewhere around there. Um, Tracking spending, uh, negotiating bills on your behalf. So... I, I want to know a few things as a technical, you know, as an engineer first, before we dive into the sort of mission behind Empower. What's your team composition? How many people have you got? You know, I, I follow Sam on uh, one of your engineers on Twitter, but I, I've been trying to figure out, do you guys have like 200 people or, how, you know, it doesn't look like you've raised that much capital. So how have you, you've been around what? Two years, 18-ish months? We've been, products been in the market two years now. Okay. So how many folks do you have? How have you, you know, you're technical, but obviously, you know, maybe not a software engineering background. How have you managed to ship such incredible product with, with this feature velocity? Well, thank you. It's, it's, very, it's, uh, it's kind of you to say that. Um, you know, I'd say a couple of quick things. One is, um, I was I was lucky to start and and learn about being here in the valley in two thousand and eight. Um, and look, you know, back like 
back in high school I had, I literally, you know, I, I, I managed to sell shit. I was able to like, we had horses. I would, you know, you'd muck out the stables, put it in bags, stick it out the front of the house, <laughs> put it on the literally. ground. So I, had, I had all kinds of like side hustles and businesses when I was younger. And so I just learned that way. But in, in 2008, you, you learned that you had to be really lean and it made you very, very focused. Um, you know, oh, every, interesting. when I came in, so, so 2008 is top of mind for you when you're building empower, because in, in today's market, I mean, there's almost an overabundance of capital you could raise and you could hire and so forth. But you're saying 2008 is still top of mind, even in 2019 for you. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, you learn to be lean, you build it into the DNA of your company. Um, and that's the difference. Let's say things go really, really well. You know, that's the difference between a 15% net income business and a 25 to 30% net income business at the end of the day, because you just don't have that extra fat in the business. And that's a three, four, five X bump in valuation. If you're, instead of being a billion, you might be a $5 billion company. And so, but it just, it, it makes you very, very focused. Um, it, you know, other people learn from that, the next engineers that you hire, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, it was really cool. You know, you, I forget exactly when you joined, but even at the beginning of this year, we were, I think we were seven and a half people. We were like five or four engineers. Um, we're now oh, at yeah. about 12 engineers, which oh, is a few more starting soon. And as a business, we're now at like 27, 28 people. We have, you know, like seven or eight people in customer support and a couple of people in ops and a couple of people in marketing. The engineering team is still super lean. Um, and it's just, it's, Part of it is really good, is that history. Part of it is I have an amazing co-founder and CTO. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about who I wanted to partner and build the business with. Um, and then um, part of it is we also get to benefit from, again, some of these amazing secular trends. So uh, we are in this API era where almost any service you can imagine, you can there's an API for it. And so you can think about how you want to construct the Lego pieces of your business, um, you know, whether it be around fraud, phone numbers, you know, there's a way, there's APIs for us to send you push messages, text messages, chatbots as a service, uh, fraud as a service. Uh, there's about five different APIs we use as we think about building the identity from a regulatory point of view of the user, yeah. but making it seamless for you as the user so that you only enter the most minimal information possible, but we are able to take everything from a, an IP address to a phone number, um, you know, to residential address and, and use that in, you know, four or five other services to build a tapestry of, you know, fraud vectors and intent and all of these kinds of things. And so um, part of it is being able to have, having started the business recently, Everything is run as a platform. We don't host a single, yeah. you know, server anywhere, database anywhere. Um, it's a really standing cool on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. So, okay, I, I, I want to get get to why I, I I would consider Empower as a financial inclusion app. Um, it, it it feels like not only you're servicing people like me, but uh, folks in the U.S. who may, you know, may be underbanked. Um, so I have it on good authority that one of one of the 
the thoughts or experiences that led you to think about starting Empower was visiting some folks in Arkansas who I, I, I don't know why an Aussie would have um, you know family in Arkansas of all places so maybe we can table that for later but I'd be curious to hear what was it about you know meeting your family and maybe interacting with them that led you to think that there might be something worth attacking here yeah so um you know, as a, when I came to the country, I um, had a certain mental model of my finances and financial health and money. Um, that was kind of broken here in some ways. Um, the, the classic one for me was, you know, I never got a credit card for the first four years I was here because I thought I would be penalized if I borrowed money and not the other way around. Right. And so I didn't get one. And then when I graduated HBS and I needed to get a car, I needed to get a loan. Um, I literally photocopied my, uh, my, what do you call it? The manuscript or the diploma yeah. as a way to try and like proof that I might be able to pay. Literally <laughs> I promise I'm reliable. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't have a credit history. And so, and not everyone has that, that fortune. And so, um, you know, I, that was all really backwards to me, you know, but I'd spent a lot of time on both coasts in amongst people more fortunate and who not just fortunate, but financially literate. Um, and I, I'd been working on this idea and my criteria as I thought about the businesses were, you know, I worked up a couple of ideas, I baked them off against each other and I kept te pressure testing and pressure testing them. And it was this trip um, who friends who live in Conway, which is just outside of Little Rock um, and amazing people, you know, and, but it's very different situation. You're, um, you know, you've got, four kids and the house is worth a fraction of what it is on the coast and one income, maybe a little bit of part-time income. And without me bringing up anything, my, my good friend just started chatting to me in the car. We're driving back from uh, one of those big supermarkets. What's the Walmart? I think Walmart's pretty big in Arkansas. Yeah, <laughs> roast pork for $1, one pound something a pound. And I was like, how on earth is that possible? He starts talking to me about, um, uh, like just managing their money and finances and what have you. And I just kept listening and he brought up mids and just the challenges he was having and other people were having. And I was like, for me, it was just this really great thing that, Hey, this is not a problem of, you know, people on the coast. It's, it's, and you know, I obviously did more validation, but it's a problem right across the country, across a bunch of income demographics. And the problem is that it's, it's, twofold it was one that either a people don't have time even if you are financially literate but b if you are uh if you're not financially literate you're completely screwed it's like learning a new language that you've never you know seen before and um you look at these graphs you have no idea what to do we had you know no and one it's emotional it's emotional actually we're launching some really cool stuff today around the psychology of money we've been doing a lot of research and working with psychologists and money coaches to help people understand how our family and upbringing affects the relationship with money. That's an aside, but it's, it's something we're really trying to get into in how we can really help people get to a better place. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Like to that emotional point, I remember, so I was in college and I would like not want to check the mail because like, the power bill would be in the mail and I'd have to like go figure out, okay, I've, I've got to like charge my roommates and divvy it up and then I've got to pay. And like, I'd have this like weird anxiety about it, even though like I had the money to pay it. 
And then I remember like one time checking my credit score and I had this big ding on my credit score and I was like, what's going on? And I had like forgotten to pay my credit card. And I'm like unpacking, like, why is this going on? And I realized like, I have this like big anxiety thing with money. Um, and like sometimes, you know, I could have paid that credit card, but I'm like, I'm like totally trying to ignore it and put it out of my mind because to your point, it's like, this huge cognitive load to try to figure out how to kind of like optimally manage money and like, you know, I'm in college, so I'm like relatively poor, you know, you're like, do I even have enough money to be, you know, doing this? And, um, and so I think that's really cool that you guys are like, um, actually getting to kind of the root cause of some of these money problems and the psychology behind it. Um, and I think that, you know, that's got a, a big potential to, to affect people's lives. Yeah, what, what, what did Albert Einstein say that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if that was Albert Einstein yeah. or Benjamin Franklin or who, who knows who actually that. said that. But, you know, coming to business school, it's so interesting to see the way that certain people think. Like I remember just a few days ago, one of my section mates made a comment about, you know, the, the present value of money versus future and as as a kid growing up I had no context of inflation or how does money grow or what is the, you know what's a dollar worth today versus 20 years from today and it, it's funny you mentioned Warren uh, a mental model um, because I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this particularly given that you guys have brought in psychologists and are now working on features related to the psychology of money. But I, so, so, so I lived, I lived in Utah, born in Idaho in a, in a very poor community, um, finished high school in Utah, did college there. And then I moved to Seattle and, you know, living in the coast, metropolitan sort of city, different set of folks, um, different peer group. And you start hearing people talking about, oh, you know, I, I need to get this tax deduction and, oh, I need to put money away in an IRA. And, and I start thinking, what is going on here? What, what What's an IRA? I've never heard this word before. Um, but in interacting with some folks and, and some close friends of mine who have, have subsequently taught me an incredible amount about personal finance, um, I've come to the conclusion, and it's 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 a working conclusion, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, that financial literacy is almost inherited, in my opinion. You know, my, my, my friends that, that grew up in Seattle, for example, some of them had you know, a father, for example, who would teach them about equities and, and put some money in the S&P versus, and, and, and for example, I felt some reticence and, and probably, you know, other, other members in my family around investing in real estate or, or thinking about, hey, buying a first home because, you know, 2008 is still top of mind for most folks my age. But a friend of mine, uh, who I won't name, <laughs> He, he was raised, um, you know, in, 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 a, in a way financially that he had experienced the downturn of the market um, and, and, and the uptick in terms of, um, you know, a 528 college savings plan and putting money in S&P 500 and so forth. 
And I was thinking about that. And, you know, that's a mental muscle that, you know, his, his parents sort of maybe gave him an opportunity to exercise. And those of us that sort of have to teach ourselves, it's, it's, it's a game of trade-offs. But I, I do sort of feel that at, at a minimum, financial literacy is something that it, it, it's a mindset that can certainly be passed on through a set of, you know, exercises and different things. And we all have a different, whether, whether you know what a 528 savings plan is or an IRA or not is kind of irrelevant. But what's more relevant is that psychological sort of confidence, I guess, or muscle. So I, I would love to, you know, see whatever category I fit in, um, you know, within what, whatever you guys are working on. Because I, in, in talking with, you know, my, my I, I, peers. I, I, su- I, sus- oh. I suspect from listening that you, that you won't be the, the hedonist. You might <laughs> We, we have a couple of different profiles of people, but it, it, part of it is literacy, but part of it is just a, you know, it's, it's, it's a behavioral and relationship piece. You know, there are people that no matter how much money they have, um, they, they just were brought up to, you've got to separate the concept of money and value as well, right? There's some people that they're very value focused and I have a very good friend. They are um, in a very strong financial position and yet, when they went into labor, she caught the bus to the hospital, even though they could have easily, you know, done something different. And it's just a very, it's just, a, it was a mindset about money and value and time and, and various things. And so it definitely is behavioral. It's definitely a, a cultural, cultural, the way you, you know, there's different cultures have different views on money. There's different families have different views on money. All of this impacts your relationship. And then your literacy sort of sits on top of that as well. Like, do you know what some of these things are? You know, have you had the experience of recession or downturn? You know, some to, to really grasp compounding is so hard because our minds are very linear. That's just a, it's a trait of right. the mind. Absolutely. And so, um, I, I mean, you know, I've had it drilled into me a million times and you'd think, uh, at, you know, again, spending time at Sequoia, you'd appreciate it. And so you'd think the other people at Sequoia would appreciate it. But at the same time, you know, I've seen, you know, Sequoia distribute stock in a company that appreciates 10x more because, you know, to think, imagine it going from, you know, a 10 billion to a hundred billion market cap was very, very hard after you'd seen it go from, you know, 10 million to a billion market cap. And so it's, it's just, there are all of these psychological factors that go in and, you know, software can, it can help educate, it can help you understand. And then there's this other piece that we're trying to bring into this as well, which is helping you understand uh, the relationship you have because of the cultural and family familiar and the other pieces as well. I love that. There's like so much leverage in your life to create freedom. If you can kind of take control of your finances and what you're spending money on. Um, and you know, that can have like pretty big effects. Um, and it's also really cool that you have this mission with Empower. Um, are there any kind of positive moments or memories from your life that you think kind of shaped your thinking on this or, or um, kind of made you who you are in starting this company? Um, there's many. Uh, you know, I, I do credit, again, my family with, you know, instilling not just good habits around money, but around work and ethic. You know, I, I, 
I, I did have these side hustles, these businesses um, from, you know, being a teenager and that was encouraged uh, and supported. Um, but it also came from, you know, other elements such as, you know, to get something, if I wanted it, I had to, to uh, you know, earn it in some way, shape or form. Through my grandfather, when I was very young, gifted me a few stock in a company that I got to see go up and down and up and down multiple times and, and, and see, learn about, you know, that element of things. Um, I got to, I saw my parents lose, you know, almost half their net wealth in the global financial crisis because wow. they had received bad financial advice and were levered when the stock market goes from 6,000 points to 3,000 points. And that, you know, it goes the other way. It wipes it's out, it compounds the wipeout of your equity. And so, you know, um, those are all, whether it be from a, <clears throat> you know, a formative time of thinking about business or, as I said, even thinking about how to run the business from a team and a mental mindset to thinking about money and relationships with money. Um, but my ultimate little test as we think about new products is would I recommend it to my mother-in-law? Um, it has to pass that test uh, uh, before, before it'll go out to anybody else. Yeah. And can your mother-in-law use it without you having to sit there like on the laptop with her? She is a user of the company, of the nice. product. Nice. nice. That's awesome. Um, well, we like to finish up with a couple rapid fire questions for you. Mm -hmm. um, if you could choose anyone living or, or past or present to have coffee with, who would you choose? Mm. Um, just because it came to my mind, I'm going to go with Don Bradman, Sir Don Bradman, who most Americans won't know, but he's probably one of the most famous cricket players of all time. And he, you know, again, grew up in, I think it was like, played in the 50s or the 60s, uh, but just, you know, very tenacious, very gracious, very humble. Um, and, you know, he, he's the equivalent of a Michael Jordan or something in terms of performance. His batting average is 2x anybody else's. Uh, but in terms of character and tenacity and grit, would be a very interesting person to chat to. Interesting. I'll have to look him up. Yeah, totally. What's an achievement or special credential that you're really proud of? Uh, I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> this is going to sound strange. I have two amazing kids uh, and I get to have dinner with them uh, almost every night of the week while still running a startup. That's what matters most. And here's the last one. Are there any folks that you look up to, um, anybody that comes to mind, and m maybe could you share things that you might have learned from this person or maybe character traits that you'd like to emulate? So I was, you know, my personal mentor is, you know, one of them is, is Jim Getz at Sequoia Capital, um, who people might know. Um, he was led the WhatsApp investment, Palo Alto Networks, um, AdMob, many, many great investments at Sequoia um, and was number one on the Midas list for about five years in a row, might still be there. Um, I think his ability to really uh, blend a focus on long-term thinking with uh, understanding 
really reading and understanding people and what motivates them. Um, and, you know, again, in, despite all of the things that are going on, they just, you know, what is the, uh, when, when thinking about like what the right thing to do in any situation is very, very people focused, um, which is something that uh, in an increasingly mercantile place is, or world is, is um, you know, it's just, it's great that that's always the number one thing that, that's, that's coming. And so, you know, I, um, as I said, I, I get to pick and choose from many of the traits of people that I got to work with and um, still someone I um, try and emulate in many ways. Awesome. Well, Warren, thanks so much for coming on. Where can folks find you online? <laughs> they can find me uh, on Twitter, probably is the easiest, at Warren Hogarth. Uh, you probably, there's a few conversations we've had and some uh, hardy product discussions I think you've shared, so it's probably easy to find. Uh, you know, in, in terms of Empower, empower.me or in the App Store or the Play Store, um, come check it out. It's, it's not just a bank, it's really about how you build a service that gets people to a better financial place and it helps you build wealth, build credit, um, and just, you know, free yourself of a lot of the distractions that managing money um, can have. And so that's what we really tried to build with Empower. Democratizing the financial services for the 1%, but for the 99. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Warren, thank you so much. We really appreciate it.